Now please join us for 30 seconds of a contemplative silence. very room there's quite enough love for all the world and in this very room there's quite enough joy for all the world and there's quite enough love and quite enough power to walk through our every fear For spirit One spirit Is in this very room In this very room As we come together today, I invite you to allow my words to be your words in this moment. And if not, just let them wash over you. There is a power for good. The one life that all of life emanates from. It touches all the sacred traditions upon this planet. It becomes under those traditions that which those traditions define it as, based on their profits and their legacy. It responds to each and every one of us by our own unique nature. And so in this moment, I open myself and invite you to open yourself to that life, that presence, that vibration, that principle of life in a new way as you breathe in and breathe out, allowing that breath to be the exchange mechanism for releasing anything that is inhibiting that relationship. And the in-breath drawing in to our being that experience to bless this moment in perfect peace, to celebrate artistry, to celebrate life, creativity, possibility, to celebrate all that has brought us together this day each one with our own uniques and gifts and talents, knowing that it is not by mistake that we are here, nor that we are who we are, but to come into deeper relationship with that idea is our opportunity today. The divinity that is us, growing, expanding, as we grow and expand and say yes to that idea. So I give thanks this day for every good thing necessary for each and every one of us to realize, to understand at a new depth, a new awareness, a new possibility. I give thanks for this beautiful day.
for ears to hear, eyes to see, arms to hug. And for this beautiful life, I give thanks. And I invite you to say with me, and so it is. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Brown. Thank you, Lizzie and Robin's beautiful voice today, setting us up for the the conversation that we are about to engage in. I've been, um, this last month, using Wayne Muller's book, How Then Shall We Live? And there it is. And I've got one slide that, that, uh, that shows the, the chapters, the main chapters in that beautiful book. And today is talking about the, the, the wonders and the, the awe and wonder along the way on the journey because so many of our journeys are filled with awe and wonder and, and the miraculous at times and the things that shift and change us. And, and it is the preparation and it is the, the insight and the awareness that, 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 that sets the stage for that to, to unfold. And so I love Muller's four simple questions. Who am I? And, and who am I? as we go through that chapter, and if you've been here with us this month, the Who Am I is at the end of that beautiful um, body of work in that chapter, he, he articulates that Who Am I is really up to you and I, that we get to decide, that we determine who we are. That it is not something that is designated upon us, but it is in fact choices that we make along the way. And in fact, who you, who you believe yourself to be today can be completely different, you know, in another year or another week or whatever as we move along and we move on this journey. Not that who you are today is not perfect in every way, shape, and form, but it's just that it's fluid. It's not static. We're not stuck in it. And so it's really as he, he hands the baton of empowerment to us to say, who you are is up to you. Who you determine yourself to be is really your choice. It starts out in the, in the first chapter in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in Genesis. You know, man, God created all these things and then gave God dominion. And dominion means that we get to name whatever it is. So we get to name our lives good or bad, right or wrong, up or down. And, and the same applies for us. There's a story in that first chapter when he talks about the farmer that lost his axe. And he was certain that the young boy that lived next to the farm stole his axe. So every time he saw the young boy walk by, he'd look at him and with the eyes of, there goes the thief. And then one day he was doing his work and he found his axe where he left it and put the axe back where he could find it again. And every time the young boy would walk by his farm, he'd say, well, there goes the young boy. But very interesting how we can, we can all of a sudden name something that we're certain is true, but in fact, it's just we're naming it because we've decided that there's our solution and there's, we're going to fix the blame and there he goes. And I've seen this happen many times in my own life, so we are, it's our choice. What we decide who we are is our choice. And there are many wonderful qualities because as I said in our prayer, we're the divine. We are the individualized expression of the infinite, which just for most of us, myself even saying it, it's, it's theoretical. Really? I'm, I'm divine? I'm the, I'm the drop of God in the ocean of God? Really? Mm -hmm. I mean, all that is wonderful stuff. I mean, it's beautiful poetry, isn't it? You know, it's like, uh, what's that, that one, Deserata? You are a child of the universe, you know, this beautiful prose. And I always hear it with music and it always gives me God bumps, you know. And it's like, it lifts me up. 
And then, you know, the song's over and the verses are over and then I'm back to my own thinking. And so it's very interesting, sort of that separation that goes on. But it really is about our choices of who we are. And then the next chapter, he talks about what do we love? And what do we love, I think, has a lot to do with who we are because when we decide, if we, if we are operating from a place that says that I'm not good enough or I don't, I don't deserve, that I have done something wrong in my life that is my secret but no one's ever going to know, but that is my theme that I carry out in my life, it really limits the possibilities for newness to show up in our lives. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. So what do I love is really contingent upon the vibrancy of the, the aliveness of that in our lives is really contingent upon who we believe ourselves to be, who we've made decisions about, who am I? Is it possible for me to let greater good into my life? How much good can you get away with? How much love can you accept? How much love can you offer? And, it's, and so it's so important, the subjective nature of our being really determines our capacity to give and receive love. So they're tied together quite beautifully. And then this idea as well is that, that life has got a, it's finite. That how then shall I live knowing that I shall die? Which is really not a, you know, it's not a, a popular subject. But to understand that we have a finite period of time, we only have today, we have this moment. And that's it. That's why it's so wonderful. So many people come and join us, and, and we share these messages, and, and, um, and we dip into creating this experience. Our goal with, with all this is to create the experience of the infinite, to create a, a, a place that is sacred so that we can step in together, and the things that are bubbling up for us, we can, we can be in this, the, the sanctity of this environment and be able to look at it perhaps a little more closely than on our own. So we'll talk a little bit about that today as well, how, what the dynamic of that will look like, which, which brings a little bit of what I talked about last week around shame and guilt into today's discussion. So who I am, what do I love, how shall I live knowing that, my, that I, will, I shall die? And then, what is my gift, what shall my gift be to the family of earth? And it's, it's very interesting in that chapter, uh, Muller talks about uh, there's three forms of givers. There's the, the miserly giver. You don't know, I know there's nobody here that's a miserly giver, but I'll, I'll just describe it to you so when you go out in the world and you see them, you'll know, miserly giver. But miserly givers give very, very unwillingly. They will give you stuff they don't want anymore. Oh, I don't wear those socks anymore, I'll give those away. And I don't, and you know, oh, that bicycle that's in the garage with the flat tire and the broken spokes and the, and the seats that's turned around backwards. I'll give that away because I'm never going to ride that again. But anyway, you get the idea. It's always stuff that's, they're not interested in anymore, but it's like, yeah, you know, yeah, I'm giving. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the friendly giver. And the friendly giver is someone that's, that is, it doesn't, isn't quite so bogged down in, in uh, uh, all the things that don't work anymore, but will give... Um, what they have to give. I can give this because yeah, I got a little bit. I'll give, oh yeah, I'll give, yeah, I'll give this and this. But it's a, it's a little less uh, anxious. It's a little less tough for them and it's, there's a little more freedom in it. And then he talks about kingly givers. And kingly givers give because they can. Because they're so grounded. See, and this is what's interesting. We're, we're, we're starting our Prosperity Plus again last, next week and I'm going to be teaching it again. But what it becomes is a sacred space for us to sit down and confront our own fears and anxieties about prosperity. Because the way through it is to it. 
And what I love and what I, what I stand for is kingly givers in my life so that when we see a need, we give it because we can. It's like, oh, there's a need, boom. I give to that. And I'm not just talking financially. I'm talking about energy. I'm talking about emotion. I'm talking about service. I'm talking about a variety of things. But to live an abundant life. So we have a choice. We can be the, the, the beggarly givers, the miserly givers. We can be the friendly givers. We can be the kingly givers. But so in, in talking about how should we give our gifts to the world, it's the same thing. I can't give that because if I give that, I won't have enough. But when we understand and we tap into this endless supply of life, we're always supplied. We're always resourced. If we are established firmly in the consciousness that I have everything I need in each moment to, to, to fulfill whatever is ever necessary for me to do and live in that consistently, which, which is a lot of work, it's a lot of turning over the soils of our own consciousness, but to live in that is so, so wonderful. And, and so it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating process to watch people walk that path, especially with our stuff. I just watched that movie, The... the the Wolf of Wall Street. Has anybody seen that? Don't tell my mom I saw that, by the way. <laughs> but, you know, it's just an example of there ain't enough, and we're going to get ours. And it's like, well, how many millions of dollars do you need to feel good about yourself? And then it just becomes the activity of gathering and gathering and gathering, and there's no reciprocity, there's no exchange. And, and I'm not saying it's good or bad. It's just, you see, I don't have to say it's good or bad. I don't get to stand up here and condemn anything. I'm just saying that's not for me. I'm not interested in that. You know, that's... So, but it's very interesting. So what shall my gift be to the planet of Earth? In Brene Brown's work that I referenced last week, she talks beautifully about, and the reason I bring this into these four components, who am I, what do I love, how shall I live knowing that I shall die, and what is my gift to the family of Earth, is that in Brene Brown's work, she makes the distinction between shame and guilt. And how shame is really uh, saying something happens, and as a result of something happening, I say, I'm bad, I'm broken, I'm wrong. With guilt, when we can stand in guilt, it's saying, hmm, I did something wrong, I did something bad, I did something that's adaptable, and I will not do it again because I have choice. Which all goes right back to who am I? When we go back to the question that Muller has is, who am I? Am I broken? Do I walk around feeling like I'm broken, that I don't have enough and I've got to get mine? You know, so you're stealing paper clips at work? Because no one will know how many paper clips you steal if you're stealing it. That's your, part of your spiritual practice, because for many people it is. They won't miss this ream of paper when I get home, you know. And what happens in that, I can only speak from my experience, what happens when we operate that way is we lose ourselves. We lose ourselves just a little bit. Oh, it's just a paper clip. And I'm using it as an example, but what I'm saying is at any time that I am in a behavior where I start to lose myself, I know then what I'm identifying with is this, this miserly, beggarly giving. And so it's fascinating how those little practices set us up, and then we wonder why we bring people into our lives that operate at the same level. And so you have someone come into your life that believes there's not enough and you believe there's not enough and you're both looking at each other with these beautiful glowing eyes looking into one another's eyes deeply and the whole time you're thinking how can I get something out of this person that I need because I don't have enough and it colors the whole relationship it's a very popular idea and I'm just saying for me it doesn't interest me just saying but it's fascinating to watch the world function 
You, you, you have what I need. You will fulfill me. Remember that Jerry Maguire, you know, you complete me? Ah, ah. I'm telling you, hooey. It's nonsense. I, I'm sure that writer is a wonderful person. They just need to pull that sentence out of the movie, as far as I'm concerned, because no one can complete us. What it is, is, is a very ineffective form of saying that my life is more full when you are in it. And that's true for us. When we have wonderful relationship, we have wonderful partners that we count on. When we're growing together and we're doing our work together, when, when you and your partner can say, I can count on you, thank you so much. Thanks for being there for me. And there's that reciprocity that goes on. And so the activities that we engage in when we're together and not together all goes towards nurturing that relationship because then what we bring is our love. We give our love. But it's fascinating to watch. So Bernie Brown talks about shame. And I think it's so important. Her work is, is so exemplary and so timely. John Bradshaw did work around it 20, 30 years ago, which I loved and I dove into as a, in, in my early starting examining my own life. But Brene Brown talks about shame and that, that idea that I've done something or that I'm wrong, when in fact it's guilt that is the healthy perspective to realize I've done something wrong and I can change that. And how we can spin into that shame. So, and so what shame looks like, if you wonder what it looks like, our prisons are full of young men and young women that were domesticated with shame. And so the, the, what it leads to is addiction, it leads to suicide, it leads to violence, it leads to all sorts of things that we read about in the paper every day. It's unmanaged shame. And so when we're talking about these qualities of being, these questions that Muller asks us, who am I, what do I love, how shall I live knowing I shall die, and what is my gift to leave to the family of earth, all of those things, when shame is beneath all of those, they become so beggarly and miserly in their capacity, the fullness. You know, all of us have had things we've dreamed about in directions that we've wanted to go that we've been disappointed. We have all experienced loss, every one of us. Every one of us has experienced loss, disappointment, unfulfilled longings and dreams. In, the, in Luke Chapter 15, the Pharisees are questioning Jesus. And they're asking about his part to play in terms of what his message is, because it's contrary to what the Pharisees, the Pharisees were always about sacrifice. You give, what they would do is they would manipulate out of fear that you've got to give to the temple. And as, the more you give to the temple, you will be assured a space in heaven. And so the whole, the whole, practice there for the most part was bring your sacrifices, bring your, bring your animals, your grain, your fruits, your vegetables into the, to the temple and offer it as sacrifice to God. <clears throat> and the Pharisees were eating really well. It's a side, side uh, benefit. And so they asked Jesus, you know, what was deeper in his, his teaching that was meaningful? And he told three stories in that chapter in Luke. And the first one was, he says, suppose I'm a shepherd and I have 100 sheep, and one of them goes missing. And he said, as a shepherd, would I not leave the 99 in the field and go look for the one that got lost? Because that's what a good shepherd does. And when that good shepherd finds that sheep, he puts that sheep over his, his shoulders, and he walks back, and he's so happy, and he calls his relatives and friends and says, we should celebrate, I found the lost sheep. Brought him back to the flock. 
And then he uses the example of the woman that had 10 coins and she lost a coin in her home and she was looking everywhere for it because it was, you know, it was big, one-tenth of what she had. And she's sweeping and she's cleaning and she's trying to, and she finally finds the lost coin. She calls her friends and relatives and says, hallelujah, I found my lost coin, we should celebrate. And then he tells the wonderful story, one of my favorite stories of the prodigal son. Prodigal son is the guy that says, hey, you know what? I'm going to get out there and make my way in the world. And dad, can I have my, what's mine? So his dad says, sure, here's your part of the fortune. And he goes off and he, he gets himself an apartment and he's got a, the best stereo equipment you can possibly have. And he's got a refrigerator full of beer and he's drinking all the time. And all of a sudden, pretty soon he's out of money. And then he's got to go get this really bad job. In fact, he's in the fields with the pigs, feeding the pigs. He's got nothing. He doesn't even have money to feed himself. So he's trying to eat the pig's food and he can't, he can't do it. It's horrible. So he says, you know what? Man, my dad's servants got it better than this. I'm going to go home and see if my dad will hire me as a servant. And he goes walking back up the trail, and his dad looks out, and he sees him coming, and he goes, hey, everybody, he's coming. Junior's coming back. And Junior's walking along. He's barefoot, and he's in rags. He's got, he didn't have two nickels to rub together. He's skinny because he hasn't eaten for days and weeks. And his dad says, Go out and meet him and bring the finest robes we have and give him some sandals to put on his feet and, and kill the fatted calf. We're going to celebrate. And he comes walking up the road and his dad runs out and greets him, gives him a great big hug and says, welcome home. And he says, dad, I'm so sorry. I blew all the money. I, I wasn't good on my own. I'm so sorry, you know. I thought I could do this. I thought I was ready and I didn't. He says, it doesn't matter. You're home. We love you. Welcome home. And, and this, the other brother says, what's up with this? Are you kidding me? This knucklehead goes out with a bunch of money and he blows it all and he loses everything and he almost starves to death and then he comes home and we're celebrating? And the dad looks at him and says, hey man, I love you just as much as I love him. We're always loved. And so the, the, the reason that I think it's so potent is that our journey is going to be, what Jesus was trying to tell all of us, is our journey is going to have loss. We're going to make mistakes. We are going to do things that are embarrassing, that we, are, we might even feel sorry for. Who knows? But we are always welcomed back to source. We are always loved we are always to come on back. And in the culture I was raised in, the tool that was used for domestication was shame. And, and, and so my unraveling of the shame so I could lead a more productive life, I had to put down, I had to find tools and, and, and strategies to put the shame down. And it's such powerful work. Uh, Brene Brown in her wonderful book on vulnerability talks about the antidotes to shame. And I didn't share this last week, but I, I think it's such great work. I want to weave it into this narrative because when we understand these things and we understand that all of our lives have had disappointment, we've done things that have not measured up to our expectations. But then to let it define who we are, as Muller asks us, serves no one. So she said the, one of the first antidote to shame is to recognize what whole, she talks about wholeheartedness. To live a wholehearted life. See, I'm all about wholeheartedness. I'm, I'm in for the wholeheartedness. So there's three characteristics of the wholehearted. Would you like to hear them or do you want to come back next week? Let me know. 
Put a little, we'll get masking tape. You put a little sticker and a number where you're sitting, and we'll make sure you're right back in the same seats next week, or I could tell you right now, so your choice. Next week. Okay, good. I'll do that. So anyway, but the three qualities of wholeheartedness, thank you for going along with me. I just had to break the tension in here. It's just getting way too serious. Wholehearted, wholehearted people, number one, they know how to play. They know how to play. So have you been playing much lately? Huh? Have you been having fun? Good. Good sign. Healthy sign. Wholehearted. Because if you're, if you're tripwired for disaster all the time, you're walking around and you're, you're tighter than a banjo string, if you know what I mean. So wholeheartedness, you can play. Relax. Let's have some fun. Look how serious we take that. Man, oh man. Lighten up, Leroy, as my brother would say. So they recognize uh, the wholehearted know how to play. The wholehearted get a lot of rest. They like to sleep. Anybody here like to sleep besides me? Yeah. You know, which, another, it's another sign of healthy. All right, hey, I'm tired. I'm going to take a nap. I was working on this talk yesterday. I went and took a nap right in the middle of it. <laughs> I said, I'm tired. I'm going to take a nap. And I'm proud of it, too. In fact, I'm thinking of dozing off right now. <laughs> like to play, sleep, and they're creative. They're innovative. And the reason that you can be innovative is because when you go into shame, see shame, somebody, name a characteristic of shame. Deb, what's that? What, how do you feel when you're in shame? Embarrassed. Embarrassed. How do you physically feel when you're in shame? Anybody? Sick. Who said, who said sick? Sick, Yes. Your gut's tight. Anybody else? Because you're getting money. Anybody that answers? This is money for you. There's money prizes in this. Mm, nobody wants any money. Cool. All right. Nauseous. Nauseous. Yes. Your palms start to sweat. This is not me making this up. This is hard science. Heartbeat. Yes. Headaches. It is the same characteristics as trauma. The same characteristics as trauma. If you're in a war zone, you've been in an accident. I remember when I went through the Northridge earthquake in 1993, and I rode the bed around the, the bedroom for about 35, 40 seconds. And we were traumatized. We didn't even realize it. We were just happy to shake the house. And then the aftershocks, it shakes for another three months. It's just like having an earthquake every seven minutes. Oh, here we go again. You know, they, they diminish about one half a gradient each time. But... It's trauma. So when you live in an environment of shame, you're living in trauma, you can't think. The part of your brain that is creative and productive, that can play and have fun and relax, it's all shut down. You are white-knuckling your way through life. So to be able to play, to get enough rest, and to be creative. So that the infinite intelligence that would like to inform us and, and help support us in our gifts can have more access to our awareness. So the antidotes to shame. This is what wholehearted people do with shame. Number one, they recognize their shame. They know what it looks like. And they know when they're in it. They know what it looks like and they, and they know when they're in it. So see, we all have it. None of us, there's not anybody that doesn't have it. But the wholehearted ones, the ones that are getting on with their life and moving forward, understand when they're in it and, and, or, or what it looks like and when they're in it. Number two, these people, the wholehearted, practice critical thinking around it. 
So they, they, they have a conversation with themselves and say, really, am I feeling shame about this? And is this from the, my past or what is going on here? How do I shift my shame into guilt so that I can, so I can use this experience to say, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. This is too painful because when I do this behavior, I lose part of myself in it. When I'm stealing the paper clips, I'm losing part of myself. That's a trigger for me that puts me right back into shame. See the subtleties of it? So it's, it's not about living a good life because God's watching us. We're watching ourselves. We're the infinite. We are the infinite. To nurture ourselves. What they do as well, the third thing, is they tell their stories. People get together and tell their stories. They share their embarrassment. They share their disappointment in a heartfelt and authentic way. When we have our small groups here, one of the activities, the possibilities, is to get together and share our vulnerability, tell our stories. Because when we tell our story in an environment that is sacred and it's held as sacred, there's empathy. And empathy is one of the antidotes. Then we can say, oh man, that hurt. I know what that, that's like. I've been there. You know, Brene Brown uses a story, an example in her teaching where she talks about this young girl that went to school and all the kids picked on her and dumped her books out and threw them on the floor and on and on. She had a horrible, horrible day. All the details go on. She comes home and says to her mom, Mom, this happened at school. She said, you know, I just, I went there and the girls were picking on me and calling me names and a couple of them came over and threw all my books out of my locker under the floor. It was awful. And so she uses the example. So then the mother says, well, I told you not to wear those jeans and pull, and pull your hair back. What is that the conversation of? Shame. And, 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 and parents love their kids and will do that. Instead of saying, oh, sweetheart, oh, golly, I'm so happy. Because the reason we don't want to go there, as Brene Brown says, is you've got to climb right back into the, to the consciousness of that, that seventh grader that you were. And, 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 and open your heart in empathy to that experience. And so to have the courage to go there as a parent and go, oh, honey, I'm so sorry that happened. That doesn't feel good at all. See the subtlety of it? It's just, it's so powerful. Because then we can hold one another sacred and say, you know what, sweetheart? There's people out there that sometimes can be really stupid. It's not that they're stupid people, but they act in a stupid way. And because I know your beauty and I know who you are and what you stand for. I'm your mom or I'm your dad. But it's so, none of us get this training. Nobody told me when I got married and had kids, you've got to take this six-week course on dealing with shame and guilt, then you'll be ready. No, you just start having kids and you start parenting them just like your mom and dad did. At least what I, it's the only rule, that's the only book I had. So telling our stories. Number four, Wholehearted people will talk about it. Wholehearted people will talk about being embarrassed. They'll talk about, they, have, they give a voice to shame. Because what you realize is when, you, when you're authentic, when you, when, you speak, when you speak in an environment of authenticity and honesty, it opens us up to the vulnerability. See, vulnerability is the seed of creativity and possibility. Most people hate the word vulnerability. Most people think it means weakness and it means you're a victim. Vulnerability is that place where you're permeable and you're authentic with yourself and you're going, wow, man, this hurts sometimes. And you can be with people that can sit with you in the hurt because what this community is about or what it's growing into in an even more lovely way is creating an environment where it's sacred, 
Where we, what we do when people walk in the door, our role in this is to see the divinity within each person. And then we invite people to start doing their own examination, to do, doing their own work through classwork, and now we're, we're continuing to build that, that vibrancy with, with our small group because we want to stay connected in a way that's meaningful and powerful without, and with, with a great deal of freedom around it. But people have the opportunity to dip in because what happens for us is when we use all these tools to express this vulnerability and this pain, we're able to be together and witness in empathy what's going on. And so it's, it's one thing to know who we are, as Muller asked, and it's another thing how we treat ourselves. If you look at the evolution of this community, we went from the Center for Self-Awareness, which I wasn't here when that happened. Someone told me, oh yeah, you're that minister over there at that Center for Selfish Behavior. <laughs> I don't think that was ever a name, but I'll check and get back to you. Or was it the, the community for the self-centered? That's it. So I, I bought Dave another beer and I just left the place because he was having fun talking to me. Dave's laughing, by the way. I actually had somebody say that to me. But, so, but anyway, so it was self-awareness self, uh, and then it became spiritual awareness. And now it is spiritual living, which I don't think is an accident. See, because one is knowing who we are. The infinite, we are the divine presence. Inform, individualized, right here, right now, you and I. And the other piece is, is that, so we know that, but the other piece is then how do we treat ourselves knowing that? What is my inner vocabulary? Do I continue to feed myself these memories of shame which tells me I'm bad and wrong and I'm broken? How can I possibly be productive upon this planet? How can I be anything but miserly in my willingness to give something meaningful into the world if I believe that I'm, I'm broken? We can try. So the reason I think it is just so powerful because what I think we're called to do, I know what I'm called to do in my life is that the message I got is when I was a kid, this is how I was domesticated. I get it, I get it, I get it. And it was given to me in love. Just like the mom that says, I told you not to wear the jeans and pull your hair back. That's how she extends love. She's trying to help her daughter from the pain. If you look better and, and groom yourself better, maybe they won't pick on you is what she's saying, which is just layering on the shame. But to take a moment and, and the beauty of that, the, the sacredness of that and say, sweetheart, I'm so sorry. And step back into your own identification with it and go, oh, golly. And that's the vulnerability. And it's so healthy and so powerful and so transformative. Because then when we do our prayer work, then when we say that I am the thing itself, that God's life is my life, it means something. It has some traction. It has a place to land. It's okay. I, I, somebody listening fell through the door. That's pretty amazing to me. Are you okay? Okay, good. We don't want anybody falling down around here. Yeah. But there, there, there's the future right there. Coming through the door on cue. There's the godlings of our legacy that we can either pass down the legacy of shame because we th that's what we learned is love or we can step up into the world together in a way that is more uh, wholesome and more uh, loving and balancing and clear. So it's... It's our choice. We get to decide who we are. We get to decide what we love. 
See, I was called to this. I, I have been called to ministry, which is always surprising to me. But I love it. I, I just love, love, love the discovery. I love being able to pull in all the different traditions in the world and go, oh my God, look at this. Uh, Jesus said this and Buddha said this. I got a book in my office that, that melds the two sayings. I mean, they weren't saying much different from one another. Truth is truth. And a lot of that is generated by environment and culture and history. You know, Jesus came along at a time when there was a lot of really rotten stuff going on. Anyway, he lived, they let him live 33 years. He was such a radical. He was challenging the status quo. But, you know, all of us, all of us, it's important for all of us to seek and find our own salvation, wherever it may be. And to, to, and to look at and to do our own work so that we create a, as I said, we create an empathetic space here where it, it, we can sit together with one another and hold one another as sacred while we do our own work. Because I can't do your work and you can't do mine. I wish, it, I wish I could mail it in, but I can't. But what I know now, I've had enough experience with, is I've had enough wonderful mentors. I've had enough wonderful teachers and prayer partners. I've been in enough environments where I've been held as sacred even though for the most, most of that time I didn't feel like I deserved it because my shame was so alive and I was embarrassed. How could somebody care that much about me when I've been so bad and I'm so broken? And they just sat with me and sat with me until I ra- unraveled more and more and more of that. It's a beautiful thing and I'm so grateful for that. That's part of the legacy. That's why I'm, I'm so grateful for their mentoring that allows me to stand with you this day and share these ideas. So we've gone from the center of self-awareness and the center of spiritual awareness to the center of spiritual living, which means, once again, it's great to know who we are, really important, but it's even more important how we treat ourselves. So treat yourselves lovely this week and kindly and with empathy, with joy and the expectancy of great good over and over and over again, no matter how uncomfortable it is. And guess what will start coming into your life? People that match that. And that's a lovely thing to look forward to. So blessings.